Previously on Beta. Well, Uncle Rico's got a sale to finalize in Benita in five minutes. Magic school buses don't do standard curriculum. Well, that didn't tell us very much. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, the award-winning screenwriter and author Dennis Lehane joins us to discuss his latest novel, Small Mercies. It's a gripping thriller that takes place against the backdrop of Boston's turbulent 1974 busing crisis. Well, I think I write about tribalism. I think I've been writing about tribalism consistently since my first book. Also, film critic Walter Chow returns for our recurring series, Walter on Walter. The series focuses on the films of director Walter Hill. Today, Chow talks about Hill's 1979 New York City gangland drama, The Warriors. They had to pay off real gangs for the right to go through their territories. They, they hired them on as extras in the big conclave sequence in the first half of the movie. But first... What if she goes off and gets a boyfriend? At math camp? I just have to tell her. Here's what you gotta do. You know how in the military, they're like, the first word and the last word out of your mouth needs to be sir? Do it like that, but with girl. Girl, you look so fine, girl. Like that. Has it ever worked for you? Boy, no it has not, boy. That's a clip from the Amazon Freebie streaming series, Primo. It was created by best-selling author and beta regular Shea Serrano. It's based on Shay's life growing up in San Antonio, Texas. Primo is a very funny situation comedy that follows Rafa, a 16-year-old high school student who's dealing with being raised by his five uncles, who live with him. Christina Vidal plays Drea, Rafa's mother. She's the stabilizing force that keeps her son and five brothers from wreaking total havoc. Former Beta guest Michael Schur, the man behind such hit sitcoms as Parks and Recreation and The Good Place, worked with Shay to develop Primo. Together, they took an era of Shay's life and turned it into a heartwarming and hilarious show. Shay joins us to tell why he wanted to share this part of his life with the world. I had written a couple of books. I've been doing journalism for a while and I was ready to like try some new stuff. Mm. And so I went to I went to a dinner with my with my wife Laramie. I was telling her I wanted to try to do a TV show. And then we just started talking about what that show could be and we went back and forth on a few ideas. We both liked a version of like a of like a family in South San Antonio and we just started talking our way through that until eventually we landed on on what the idea for Primo was, was there's a mom and she has five brothers and the brothers are like uh, helping to raise the 16 year old kid. When I, when I was talking to Mike about it, he was like, oh, it's like, uh, like Inside Out. This is live action Inside Out. And I was like, that sounds great. Yeah, that's exactly it. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael Shore, who has also been on our show and who of course is responsible for such sitcoms as Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place and Rutherford Falls. And you you contacted him because, correct me if I'm wrong, but you it said you were, back in 2017, you said you were tired of waiting for there to be more Mexicans on TV. So you decided to reach <laughs> out, right? Is that an accurate quote? Uh, yeah, I remember I remember tweeting that when the news came out that we had sold the, sold the show. Right. I was very excited. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you you pitched the, the, the idea to Michael Shure. How did he react? Uh, Mike was super cool. Um, you mentioned he's been on the show. He's like the nicest, most humble dude. Mm-hmm. Much like yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except he's better. 
<laughs> I don't know so about we, that. <laughs> so, so I went, I met with him in his office. At the time, I didn't like really have a sense of who he was. They, I, he was just uh, like a name on a list where the agents were sending me all over LA to meet with different people. And I walked in and I was like, oh shoot, it's Mo's from the office. This is crazy. Like, this is going to be fun. And we just sat there and, and chit chatted it up for an hour. We maybe talked about the show for like five or 10 minutes, but mostly we talked about, uh, about basketball and about being a dad and that sort of thing. But we got, it was, it was pretty clear. We were like getting along very um, effortlessly. Mm -hmm. So as I was leaving, he was like, Oh, Hey, whatever that, you know, that idea you want to do, I'll help you do it if you want to do it. And I was like, Oh, that sounds cool. Sure. And yeah. then I left. And then I'm, then when I called the agents and told them, they were all freaking out. They were like, do you not know who this guy is? Like he's, he's responsible for this, 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 the, the, the you know, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn, the show, yeah, yeah. uh, the good place. And then I realized in that moment in my office right now, I have like a blood in, blood out movie poster hanging up. And I have a Desperado movie poster hanging up and a Bloodsport movie poster hanging up. Mike also has posters in his office hanging up. I thought they were just TV shows that he liked in the way that I have movies that I like. Mm. And there was, it was all TV shows that he had made. And I'm like, oh my God, what, a, what an idiot I am. I had no idea. And then there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, you're not an idiot at all because you've been very busy. And, and look at everything you've done. <laughs> everything you've done kind of turns to gold. So how, how did you and Michael collaborate in terms of developing the show? When I showed up, I had the general outline of what this show was. It was like a paragraph long pitch, two paragraphs or whatever. And then he said, okay, this is like the, a good start. Here's what we do next. You're going to need to write a character doc, like list out all the characters and, and, and their personalities and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, cool. I got it. Um, what does that mean? And how do I do it? And he goes, oh, okay. You've never done this before. Cool. Here's, here's, I'll send you an example of one that, that, I've written, great. He sends it to me, I read through it, okay, I understand. And I write that up. And then and then the next one, I was like, all right, cool, you did that, now you need to do a story doc. All right, what is that, what does that mean? What does that look like? And he just is like, he just baby stepped me through the, the whole process. Each time we would enter a new phase, he would just sit me down and go, here's what that means, and here's how we get through it. He's like a natural mentor. Mm. It's really, it's, it's really impressive when you talk to him and it's like, oh man, this is, this is something that he just is good at doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Since Primo is based on your life as a teenager, being raised by your mother and five uncles, I'm curious about how similar are the actors who play your relatives to your actual relatives? We used my uncles, my mom, the bus driver, the love interest as like ge just general shapes. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then we built out from there. So it's like, okay, my mom is this type of person. All right, great. Let's find. We we found Christina. She was perfect for it. Mm -hmm. And then we just like, and then you just write for for what Christina is good at, which turns out is everything. And you just give her as much space as possible, and then she builds this incredible character. Mondo, where the hell have you been? Here. Okay, your doctor called. We need to get your heart checked. Let's go. I'm sure it's fine. The universe will take care of me. Yeah, I'm the universe. That's me. I'm here to take care of you. Keeping you baboons alive is a full-time job. Let's go. Same with the other five uncles. We had like a general shape. Okay, we need one guy who's gonna be like really pragmatic and super interested in just like working hard. Okay, cool. And then that's one of my uncles. And then another one should be the opposite of that, just like free spirit, sort of wandering the earth. Okay, cool. And a wild man and the military guy and the like social climber. They're, they're 
when my uncles watch the show, they can go like, okay, that's me. Um, but mostly it's just, we use the general shape and then build from there. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about what it was like for you to watch the actors playing your mother and your uncles, like when you would see them, you know, filming scenes, what, what was going on in your brain? Was it like a flashback kind of experience or not really? No, not really because, because we, we had, or I guess I had decided pretty early on that I was not interested in doing like a, a, a shot for shot remake of my life. Mm-hmm. So once we had the characters in place, then then it was just all sort of these are just fictional characters now, because if they if I was trying to make them too much like the people in my life, I found myself in the writers' room. For example, I would be very defensive when somebody would pitch a thing like for the mother uh, for Drea to do. I would be like, my mom would never do that. How dare you? I would I would get mad and be like, no, this is not gonna this is not gonna work. We have to separate this. This has got to be a work of fiction, not true to life. You know. Yeah. A main uh, one of the main differences, a good example is like in real life, my dad and my mom are married, right? Mm-hmm. In the show, you can't have the dad character there because you need the five uncles to be the dad. So mm. we just all right. Well, he, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's just like in service of of the story. Yeah, the casting is perfect. Like that's such everyone in it is is so great. And I'm curious about what what your family what your family thinks of the show. You mentioned, I think, that your mother and your uncles have, have seen it. We did a screening for them a couple of weeks ago. It was the first time any of them had watched it. I was real nervous. Mm-hmm. Like, before we started playing it, I was like, oh, my God, what if they hate it? This is going to be terrible. Because, part, like, mainly the whole reason I was doing the show was I wanted for them to watch it and then go, whoa, I had, like, a profound impact on this kid's life in, in a very positive way. That's what I wanted them to walk away from the show with. And that's what I tried to make sure that we did in the show. And so I was nervous to show it to them, but we started watching it. And by the second episode, they're all hooting and hollering and like yelling at the TV screen, like we're watching a basketball game. Then they all just said the nicest things about it. One of them, two of them start crying when they're watching it. Like it was a really great experience seeing them watch the show. They just, they were, they were over the moon for it. That's great to hear. Wonderful. And I can understand why they would be. How difficult a transition was it for you to go from writing your two number one New York Times bestsellers to writing a TV script? The transition was really tricky. It's difficult because I was so used to doing like nonfiction writing, right? Yeah. And when you're writing about, when you're doing nonfiction writing, the history has been established. Uh, A person does a thing and that thing makes sense because they have the history that leads up to it, right? Right. You don't have to worry about about that part. But when you're writing fiction, you all of a sudden have to account for all of that. Like if a, a character is going to say a thing or react a certain way, there's got to be a reason why. So you have to build all of that in place. Otherwise, it starts to feel disjointed or like it doesn't make sense. Like there's, it'd be like if you were watching uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and then Uncle Phil, for some reason, decided to smack one of the kids. And you'd be like, well, that's not who that character is because of the history we know. He's this very loving, very, very tender uh, father and father figure. And they, they did such a great job of establishing that character, right? Uh, when, you're, when I was working on the show, writing that stuff, it was like, oh, I'm, we have to do all of that first before we can do this, this other stuff. Mike was explaining a thing about how, like, after a couple of episodes, what it should feel like is you should be able to look at a script with nobody's name on it like no character name. And you should be able to tell just by the line who's saying that thing. 
And that was like in my head a really helpful, uh, like a, a writing tip that, that Mike had that helps you understand the scope of the work. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a very good tip, yeah. The, that first episode that you wrote the, the script for, the first episode, Big Eyes, it's very funny. Well, all of the episodes are very funny, but the first one is, the, it's very funny. And, and you, have, you came up with some great one-liners for, for the actors to say. Do you have a favorite scene in that episode? My favorite scene in that episode is the very last one when they're all sitting at the table together. And Rafa's telling them, you know, he's made his decision, he's gonna do this. And so they're all sitting around eating. It's Rafa, it's Drea, it's the five uncles. And anytime we could get all of the characters together, it was just the most fun thing. Actually, the point is that I'm grateful for you guys. You are all looking out for me and I'm sure I'm gonna need to lean on all of y'all at the appropriate times for advice on different things. Like when you're gonna ask Maya out? Who told you Maya's the girl I like? Our brains, every time we see you make Google eyes at her. Hold on. Did you just say Google eyes? Yeah, Google eyes. That's why they call it Google. It's like your eyes are searching for information. Mm, it's Google eyes. No, it's googly eyes. Gentlemen, it's ghouly. Like a ghoul. Because you're so scared of how much you like that person. Yeah, so scared that That's the dumbest thing ever. But I remember specifically that one because we're shooting it. We're like a couple of days into the shoot, maybe a week or so. And they're out there and in between takes, they're all joking around and playing. And, and they're like, they keep breaking character because they're laughing so much. And w I was sitting there watching it and I was with uh, Lisa Muse Bryant, who's an executive producer on the show, and Peter Murrieta, who's an executive producer on the show. They were in Albuquerque when we were filming it. But we're sitting there watching it. And I was like, oh my God, this, this has a chance to be something really good. Like it was a, I, I felt it in that moment, just watching them all interact with each other because they felt like a family. They, it was clear that they all liked each other. Um, it was clear that we were headed in the right direction and it looked great and the script was really strong because we had gone through so many rewrites and we had a writer's room now pitching on jokes and watching that scene now, especially when I watch it, rewatch the, the show, I just, I remember the back end of it and, that, and having that feeling of, of being like, oh man, this is, this has a real chance here. Mm-hmm, definitely a very, very solid real chance. And Rafa, of course, is the character inspired by you. Do, you. do you have a favorite episode of the eight episodes that make up the first season? Man, I, I feel like anytime somebody asks me that, I have a different answer. Like right now, I'm thinking about the, uh, the cookout episode, which is the second in the air yes. order. And Courtney, uh, Courtney Creel directed that. And I remember when we saw his cut, I was watching it and was like, this is exactly what I want the show to be like. The Gonzalez Family Neighborhood Barbecue. <laughs> That's enough. Mondo, Ryan, you're on fireworks as usual. Don't know how you're gonna top last year. It'll come to me. I am but a vessel. The Aztec out of fire should the quickly speaks through me. Plus, I have a cool lamp. We can do 3D renderings of the explosions. The merging of the ancient with the modern. This is how civilization progresses. Just like when Santana played with the Matchbox 20 guy. Roly, beer duty. Got it. Can't wait. Beer duty means you get beer for other people, not just you drink a lot of beer. What? This is the template right here. It feels they're at the house. They're all together. There's all this goofy stuff going on. There's some. Uh, some really funny lines in that one. There's really a heartfelt moment at the end. It's just, 
right now thinking about it, that's that's my answer for favorite because it was the first time I felt like, oh man, it's all it's all here. Yeah, it is all there. The show really is firing on all cylinders, definitely. A couple of years ago, you said that you were feeling as happy and proud as your beloved San Antonio Spurs were when they won the championship in 2014. <laughs> you still feeling that way now? I do, yeah. I, I rewatched the show uh, recently. You know, it's, a, it's always nice to, like, when you're working on it, you watch it 50 times every single episode, like all the way through. Mm-hmm. And then you take a cut. We finished it. It's all done. There's nothing, there's no changes you can make now. It's like locked and loaded and, and been distributed. So now you go back and watch it in a different sort of way of like, okay, I'm not looking for anything to change. I just, I, I have to watch it now and just hope that it's actually good. And mm-hmm. I just didn't, I wouldn't lie to myself. And I sat there and I, I watched all eight episodes in, uh, in my office by myself with the lights off and my phone off. And, and I was just so proud and happy and in love with it. It's, it turned out, so so great the work mm. of uh, 250 very talented people to me i watch the screen and i see all of their all of their work up there well that's great what a kind and thoughtful thing of you to say shay serrano thank you very much for joining us today congratulations on the debut season of primo we are looking forward to watching many more seasons oh god i hope so Jay Serrano is a best-selling New York Times author and the creator of the Amazon Freebie streaming series, Primo. You can find out more about Shay and Primo at wpr.org beta. This book flowed out of, it was a very pleasant experience to write. I know it's not, it's, it's hard to believe because it's such a brutal book. Coming up, the acclaimed novelist Dennis Lehane on his latest novel, Small Mercies. It's a propulsive thriller set against the 1974 Boston busing riots. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. For the past few decades, Dennis Lehane has been one of the most influential and prolific authors of crime fiction. The Bard of Boston, as I just this moment dubbed him, is probably best known for his bestsellers like Mystic River, Shutter Island, and Gone Baby Gone. He also served as a writer for The Wire, Boardwalk Empire, and Blackbird. Lehane's latest Southie saga is the novel Small Mercies. It's set at the tail end of summer in 1974 during the Boston busing riots. This forced school desegregation led to violent and racist protests. Caught up directly in this upheaval is Lehane's tough-as-nails protagonist, Mary Pat Fennessy. Mary Pat's daughter goes missing the same night a black man is killed in a white Boston neighborhood. At first, the two seem unconnected. Then, Mary Pat's journey for the truth leads her to some dark realities about both crimes. As he's done in his past work, Lehane ratchets up the tension and explores a racially sensitive time in American history. Dennis joins us to talk about living through the busing riots himself and why he wanted to center the story around a single mother from the Southie Projects. She was inspired by uh, several women I knew grow- growing up, uh, both from the, the housing projects in South Boston and the poorer sections of Dorchester where I grew up. These were women who literally could go toe to toe in a fist fight with a man. They might not win, but they would certainly hold their own for a little bit. They were all chain smokers. They were all foul mouth. 
they were all functioning alcoholics. And as time went on, I began to realize that these types of women had an inherent sadness at their core, that you don't get to be that tough unless your life is that tough, unless poverty has been grinding you down, unless there's significant abuse, whether it's from a husband or from a father. I wanted to pay tribute to that type of person and also to not gloss over what would have been her negative qualities. I, I would have found it almost impossible to believe that Mary Pat wasn't a racist. And so I start the book with her in a bit of denial about it, but that's the journey of the book is she comes to understand how pervasive her racism is and how she passed it down as a destructive legacy to the people who she loves. Yes, yeah, she's a fascinating character and very, very fleshed out, very, very multidimensional. She's, she's a very intriguing character. You set Small Mercies in 1974 against the Boston busing riots. Why did you want to investigate this era? Um, because I was nine when it happened and I had a front row seat for all of it. It was a pretty cataclysmic event in the life of the city and in my life as a kid. And it brought up all sorts of unanswerable questions about people. Here you are, and you're looking at somebody who you admire, you like, maybe you love, and they're good people with good hearts. And yet, then what this event did was scratch at a part of them, which was a virulent, virulent racism that you might not have been privy to otherwise. And once it came out of the box, it wasn't going back in for a very long time. And it felt as if, how could you align somebody who was okay with people who threw rocks at buses filled with children. I mean, they, they might not say, hey, I'd do it, but they were okay with it. And casually or vehemently use the N-word. How can you align that with somebody who you care about? How can, mm -hmm. you, how can you make sense of that when you're nine years old? Maybe some nine-year-olds can, but I sure couldn't. Yeah. How long did it take you? To, how old were you when you finally were able to make sense of it? This book, maybe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it took a very long time. It took a long time to understand that that was a source of rage at the center of me. Because I could never understand, you know, outside of having, you know, a classic Irish temper where, where I had a, a, just a wellspring of anger in me. And it certainly wasn't from my parents who were quite loving and protective. And it wasn't from any trauma in my childhood that I could point to. But then when I started to write this book, I began to go, oh, my God, I'm really mm. angry. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm extremely angry for that kid, for that nine-year-old, and for a lot of other nine-year-olds, and for a bunch of 15-year-olds and a bunch of 16-year-olds who got their, you know, got their futures taken from them by this boycott. You know, when the, when the boycott started, it went on for quite some time, and it became a like an assembly line for low-level soldiers for Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang. And there's, you know, there's whole futures, many whole futures were just wiped out. How did you approach weaving this historical timeline, this boycott, how did you approach weaving that into your plot? It was reasonably simple. It's nice to have a box. And I knew what my box was. My box ended on September 12th. So wherever I chose to start the novel, I chose to start it very close to the September 12th. I, I don't know the exact date, but I believe it begins around August 28th. Mm -hmm. And the first day of school, a first day of school unlike any other in this history of the city is looming. 
And it's about to affect this woman and her daughter. And her daughter is the only person she has left in the world. When that daughter goes missing, the same night that an African-American man is killed in a subway station, that sets the clock on the book. From that point on, everything's ticking very hard, very loud. Yeah. There are a lot of echoes of your past work in Small Mercies, but this book seems to confront the racial tensions and attitudes of Boston much more overtly. How did you approach this? This book flowed out of me. It was a very pleasant experience to write. That's hard to believe because it's such a brutal book, but it did feel like purging something. And it did feel like I was aware that maybe people would try to push back and rewrite history with this book and say it wasn't like that, it's being over-dramatized, whatever. So I sourced everything. I looked at everything as I wrote it. I looked at a lot of photographs, particularly by this guy, Eugene Richards. It's a Eugene Richards photograph on the front of the book. And he was, he was the sort of war photographer of the busing crisis. He took everything, he took so many pictures. Hmm. And there's no hiding from what he shot. There's no hiding from it. The graffiti, the signs in the windows, it was horrific. And then tied into this was the other issue, which was you had several neighborhoods throughout the city that were working class neighborhoods. And they were, they were very frustrated with constantly being told, hey, we're going to drop the highway in through your neighborhood. Hey, we're going to urban renewal your neighborhood. These things were not affecting the wealthy suburbs. So when they decided to do this and the suburbs pulled out at the 11th hour and it became simply an inner city issue and a working class issue. There were people who were legitimately outraged who weren't racists. And, you know, my father was one of them. And I feel like that unfortunately what happened was that that legitimate dismay, if you will, or a legitimate discussion that could have been had about that issue was completely overshadowed by the vehemence and the virulence of the racism. And so the debate never happened. And so it became just a situation of, here go those dumb poor again, you know, yeah. beating each other up. That's it. Yeah. yeah. The, the concept of community runs throughout Small Mercies. It, there's, it's this hardscrabble neighborhood where the best childhood friends can make the worst enemies. What is it about this idea that your neighbors can be saviors or threats that resonates with you? Well, I think I write about tribalism. I think I've been writing about tribalism consistently since my first book. And tribalism, when it exists to survive, is a good thing. It's every immigrant culture does it. You know, if you look at it, you know, what, what is Chinatown? But, you know, tribalism. Each immigrant culture will kind of do a daisy chain back to the original country and pull people over. And they'll set up their communities tightly knit in an area. But when tribalism continues past the point of its usefulness, once that tribe is kind of safe and entrenched, then it becomes a very ugly thing. And the ugly aspects of it are what I explore in this book, I think more than any other book I wrote. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. That, that, I hadn't thought of that, but what you just said, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. I think it was on Fresh Air with Terry Gross where you said that you develop books through a single character or a single line of prose. In fact, one of the lines in Mystic River was based on this, wasn't it? it uh, the, mm -hmm. the line was, it occurred to him as he was shaving that he was evil. Yeah, I drove yeah. the whole book towards that line. Did you have a similar line that inspired Small Mercies? No, I really didn't. 
Uh, with mm. Small Mercies, I just had her. Mm. I had her. And then Bobby showed up and he wasn't supposed to stay in the book. And then he stuck around. And that allowed me to leaven the darkness with some light and some hope and to give it another perspective, which I think was necessary. The book was getting, was growing claustrophobic. But Mary Pat to me was, I just saw this dynamo in my head. I had this picture of her as a, she's even described as, you know, she came out of the womb looking like she was auditioning for the roller derby. (laughs) And that's how I saw her. I saw her very much as this small squat, low to the ground force of nature coming at you as fast as possible. And she will not stop until she finds out what she, what she needs to find out until she affects some type of justice. This woman will not stop. And knowing that going into the book really just, it made it a, a really wonderful experience because all I just said was I, I lit the match. I lit the fuse. I let Mary Pat off, off and running. And then I just said, you know, we're going to take this all the way to the end. Yeah. You mentioned Bobby, the detective Bobby Coyne. He's another very compelling character. Can you tell us a bit about him? We meet him early and he's the detective looking into the death of the African-American man, Augie Williamson. He's clearly from the neighborhood. Mary Pat uh, picks up a quick affinity with him because of that. And also because he served in Vietnam, as did her son. And her son died of a heroin overdose after coming back from Vietnam. And Bobby's secret is that he got addicted to heroin over in Vietnam and has been is in rehab. And there's a gentleness to him that really surprised me. He's consistently described as having a, a rough face and a gentle voice. And I just love this idea of this courtly gentleman in the midst of all this kind of carnage, whether that be Vietnam or Boston during 1974. And I just, I liked him. I li- and then I, I got to do something I've been trying to do for years, which is his family situation. He lives with his sisters and one brother. Mm-hmm. And they all live in this, and they're all middle, heading to middle age. And they have one child between them, who's Bobby's, who comes on weekends. And that's actually based on a family I knew growing up. And I've always wanted to pay tribute to that house because I found it a wonderfully warm and kind of iconoclastic place. And that, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what I paid tribute to with Bobby's life. And then during the course of the book, he even falls in love. I mean, a lot of good things happen for Bobby. Yeah, and he, he deserves them. Yeah. You, you specialize in creating memorable lines in your writing. I'd like to ask you about a couple, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, sure, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, you were one of the writers for HBO's The Wire, and I believe responsible for one of the best lines of this series, the scene when drug kingpin Marlowe says, you want it to be one way, but it's the other way. Was that a, a Dennis Lehane line? That's a Dennis Lehane line, yeah. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good uh, one. Do you remember? Me. Yeah, Thank do you remember you. how you came up with that line? I had put it in, it was actually in a short story I wrote and a very Kafka-esque short story I once wrote called ICU. I wrote it and then all of a sudden I was like, we were always cobbling stuff from our own stuff for for The Wire. It was kind of a, it all started because they did a tribute to a scene in Richard Price's book, Clockers. And, And Richard was one of the writers of the show. And so we just began to like, crib from our own work all the time. So I took that line, I'm trying to think the other great line. I think the other great wire line I had was, the one I'm proud of was, a lie isn't a side of a story. It's just a lie. That's good too, yeah. Yeah, do you know that the uh, the, the Marlowe line is legendary in wire fandom, especially in the wire subreddit? 
on Reddit. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. I, I, people have brought it up to me a lot. So, you know, at least there's that. That's mm -hmm. yeah. nice to hear. Yeah. Another single line that packs a punch is from the movie The Drop, which you wrote. Do you know which line I'm talking about? Nobody ever sees you coming? Exactly. No one ever sees you coming, do they, Bob? Yeah, very good. So much of your work gets adapted for TV and film. I have to ask, is Small Mercies going to end up on a screen someday? Yes, yes. And it's, but it's mine. I, I'm running the show. So oh, nice. Uh, I've already cut the deal with Apple TV. Fantastic. Current, current employer. And um, we shall be getting into it very soon once I get through the first season of the next show I'm doing for them. Great. Looking forward to that. You're so busy these days as a TV writer and showrunner. There's been talk that Small Mercies could be your last novel. Will it be? No, I can't, I can't say it, whether it will or won't. Okay. I can say it could be because mm -hmm. I'm not under contract anymore. And for the first time in 25 years. So I don't owe anybody anything. I don't owe money on an advance. I don't know. I'm not owing a book on deadline. I owe nothing. And so what happened with Small Mercies that was wonderful was Small Mercies came out of the place my earliest work did, which was a very pure place of, I need to tell this story. It has to come out. And that's where I always want to write novels from, from this point forward. So mm -hmm. if, I, if I need to write uh, another novel, if I feel it possess me, then I'm going right in and writing a novel because I love writing novels. But if I don't, and I'm just going to continue making fun, quality television, then that's what I'll do too. All right. Sounds good. We're, we're, we're set either way. Dennis Lehane, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Small Mercies. It's vintage Lehane. Thank you so much. Dennis Lehane is the author of the novel Small Mercies. You can find out more about Dennis and his book at wpr.org slash beta. There's something to his movies that's more than just a, a throwaway, disposable entertainment, if there is such a thing. And that's what I think makes Americans uncomfortable anyway. Coming up, film critic Walter Chow returns to wax cinematic about director Walter Hill's 1979 movie, The Warriors. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. I want the rest of you cowboys to know something. There's a new sheriff in town. Let's try it again, punk. Bet you or me, Montana. My money'd be on you. That audio logo means it's time for another edition of Walter on Walter with Walter Chow. Chow is a film critic and the author of the book, A Walter Hill Film. In it, Chow dissects the great director's entire filmography. Today, we cover Hill's The Warriors, which was released in 1979. Walter Chow joins us to give us the lowdown on The Warriors and how he managed to convince the legendary director that he was the right guy to write a book about his movies. Well, I have no idea. I, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he is nothing but gracious. He's a really great 
kind human being. And he invited me into his home and we sat and he said, well, uh, I, I've, I've been warned about you. And he said, yeah, you're the guy that didn't like the long riders. And, um, <laughs> I, I, and I, I had not remembered that I didn't like it, you know. So I said, well, I don't remember what I wrote, but I do know that your films linger with me, whether I like them or not initially. And I always wonder about that reaction to any kind of art. I always want to go interrogate why it is something sticks with me or not. And um, that's what brought me here today. And so over the course of an afternoon chatting, uh, at the end of it, he went over to his uh, cooler and he pulled out a bottle of champagne and he says, well, it's traditional once we make a deal that, that we should drink over it. And so, uh, so we drank a little champagne. You say that there's something about Hill's films that makes Americans uncomfortable. What, what do you think that something is? I think that he kind of really, you know, pushes that that pleasure button a lot. And we're very fond as a culture of the term guilty pleasure. And I think a lot of his movies fall into that category. I think that pleasure should be guilt-free. If you love something, then love it. And then interrogate why you love it. You know, look for the ultimate reasons for why you love it. Um, instead of it just it blows up real good or there's a lot of good fighting. And, you know, there's a lot of movies that have things blown up and a lot of good fighting, but there's something to his movies that's more than just a, a throwaway disposable entertainment, if there is such a thing. And that's what I think makes Americans uncomfortable anyway. So does it follow that if Americans are uncomfortable with Walter Hill's films, does it follow that people of other nationalities are comfortable with Hill's movies? The, these film festivals in Spain and Italy or, and France are inviting him out to do career retrospectives and say, boy, you know, we're, we're going to show the Warriors in an outdoor amphitheater, as they did recently in Italy, and we're going to invite 12,000 people to come. So he has been appreciated, as so much of our art historically has been appreciated by by the Europeans first, you know, because we've always been a little bit anti-intellectual. We're a little bit uh, allergic to looking at our culture as art. Uh, you know, it took the French New Wave to give Hitchcock and John Ford back to us as art. And indeed, I think in a similar way, it's the Europeans that are giving Walter Hill back to us. Walter Hill's 1979 film, The Warriors, is based on a novel by Saul Urich. Can you tell us about the novel and the changes that Hill made for the movie? The novel is very, I think, self-consciously um, drawn back to the old Greek story, the old Xenophon story. Uh, it's called Anabasis. It's about a, a, a crew of warriors who are trapped in enemy territory and have to have to fight all the way back to the sea, essentially. Um, and it's very realistic in many ways in the way that it portrays street life. It's very violent, but there are many differences. And in fact, the author, Saul Yurik, didn't like the movie. He said that you know, Hill has made a fantasy. It's almost like a comic book. You know, mine is social realism and it's serious and it's based on mythology. Hill understood, I think, very well what Saul Yurik was going for and saw that it would be more effective if he returned to the this, this story of street gangs in New York, which was a huge story at the time. He said it would be much more effective if I returned the story to the realm of mythology, if I made it an archetypal film. And in that way, when you watch The Warriors, when I watch The Warriors anyway, I don't feel like it's aged at all. Whereas reading the mm. book, it's very much a part of its time. Whereas with the Warriors is is self-consciously timeless. The, the Warriors was a low-budget film with a short 30-day shooting schedule. How did the shoot go? It was um, 
interesting. They had to pay off real gangs for the right to go through their territories. They they hired them on as extras in the big conclave sequence in the first half of the movie. Uh, the, those are actual gang members, a lot of actual gang members there. They were all very happy to be there with their colors and to, to show that they were there. Uh, um, there are a lot of stories from the set of the crew running to avoid being urinated on as they're passing under uh, elevated bridges and things like that. It was a dark uh, shoot at some points, but it really engendered this feeling of togetherness for the actors. They really felt like they're part of a gang. Um, they felt like, okay, we got to band together or else we're, we're actually going to get messed up out here. So there are all sorts of uh, stories about paying off gangs to allow them to get off at certain stops at certain times. Um, there were certain times that they were not allowed to wear the warrior's colors uh, during certain parts of town, so they had to relocate their shoot. So a lot of interesting stories about managing chaos, essentially. And of course, you couldn't really string up lights. They, they shot all um, on, on location, so you couldn't string up lights on Broadway or, or wherever they were shooting. And so they would hide lights in trees. They would try to bounce lights off the ground. And so they, they contrived a rainstorm early on in the film so that you know they could bounce light off the streets. It was a really uh, buyer seats kind of production, which suits Hill really well. Hill is a little bit notorious, I think, for coming to a, a film without a completed screenplay sometimes and writing all night to shoot the scene that they would uh, shoot the very next day. Uh, a tense way to work, but I think it, it it's obviously worked out well for Hill. Yeah, th there's a scene in The Warriors in which one of the characters delivers a speech to hundreds of gang members. Can you count, suckers? You're standing right now with nine delegates from a hundred gangs. And there's over a hundred more. That's 20,000 hardcore members. 40,000 counting affiliates. And 20,000 more not organized, but ready to fight. 60,000 soldiers. Now there ain't but 20,000 police in the whole town. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? What, what kind of, I'm curious about what kind of challenges did shooting this scene pose for Hill and his crew? They had to wrangle all of these extras. And so after the speech and the uh, leader is killed and there's panic, um, they had to shoot this massive moment of panic, these mobs running in every direction. And really what the assistant director did was he just said, okay, this row clockwise, this row counterclockwise, clockwise, counterclockwise. And he counted up all the tears of these young men. And so when he shouted action, everybody ran in the direction that they were instructed to run in. And when you look back, it looks just like chaos rather than kind of this or organized clockwork uh, plan. So, you know, a lot of challenges. And of course, they had a very limited amount of time to shoot it in. They only had, you know, a certain number of night hours to do it in. And, and you know, Hill also clashed really severely with the original star of, of the film. In the middle of the shoot, Walter Hill got rid of, fired his main star and said, okay, uh, instead of you, um, now you. And he points over at Michael Beck, who plays Swan and now is the, the star of the show. Um, I think that kind of Substitution only works, though, if the real heart of your film is somewhere else. And again, you know, in a movie that's all about men, really, the heart of the film is Mercy, uh, who is the only character that undergoes any kind of real growth in the film. She is empowered and strong and smart and sexually uh, 
promiscuous in a way that's empowered rather than devalued. Did you get the coat? You ask a lot of questions. Don't give me that. I stole it. Cops are looking for somebody in a pink top. Real tough chick. All right, you said that before. Now look, if you still want to get to Union Square, I can show you where to grab the train. Okay. Come on. Uh, she's a, an amazing character, amazing female hero. There's a really beautiful scene at the end of it on where they're they're home and they see these kind of posh kids going to the prom or coming home from the prom, um, and they're kind of looking. And it makes Mercy self-conscious, and she starts to adjust her hair and try to look a little cleaner and prettier. And uh, Swan, Michael Beck's character, stops her. And there's this understanding there that she is fine the way she is. She doesn't have to look some different way for somebody else. And that's really a remarkably progressive statement at the end of a movie that most people only remember as sort of a silly, maybe guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about uh, the, the women in, in the Warriors. You mentioned, of course, Mercy, but there are, are some other women too. And can you talk a bit about the, the part they play in this film that is ostensibly about groups of boys and young, young men, but the part that they play when the film turns its attention to women? Yeah, there's a whole gang that are is just women, which is something that, you know, Hill really wanted to portray as well. He wanted to, you know, have non-sexualized, essentially, tough women. Call, it, the group is called the Lizzies, and they invite, you know, the, the warriors have broken up in their flight back home. They've broken up into little groups, and they invite one of these groups back to their place to party. And so these young men are very excited that these uh, uh, young gang, these young women gang members want to party with them. You know, you're all the first friendly faces we've seen all night. Hey, that's the way we are. Let's party a little, get something going. Yeah, sure. Hey, I can dig that. Hey, uh, you know, you came to the right guys. Oh, don't thank us, man. Just relax. Fall out. Take your pick. Oh, thanks. This is a great outfit. What click is this? With the Lizzie's. Lizzie's. Hey, great. Just great. I like that. I like it. Glad to hear it. We go back to their place, and... This is when the warrior named Rembrandt, played by the great Marcelino Sanchez. Uh, if you're my age or older, you remember the great 321 Contact series of, of kids' shows. And, you know, Marcelino Sanchez was part of a sketch on there called The Bloodhound Gang. He was a huge part of my upbringing, an openly gay man. Um, and he plays Rembrandt in this film, the chronicler of the warriors. He's gentler, he's not a fighter. He spray paints their way. He tells the story. He's caught at one point on the subway reading a comic book. And, and so he notices, because he's not interested in the women, he notices that they're packing, that they have have uh, switchblades, they've locked the door. And in fact, it's an ambush. They're working on behalf of the bad guys. So you're the famous warriors, the guys that shot Cyrus. The chicks are packed! The chicks are packed! And so uh, he becomes the hero in that moment. And, you know, one of the modes of masculinity that Walter Hill uh, will uh, interrogate in all of his movies is how men can be heroes without necessarily being violent heroes. And this is one of the ways that Rembrandt sort of proves himself during this long night for the warriors. Good news, boppers. The big alert has been called off. It turns out that the early reports were wrong. All wrong. 
Now, for that group out there that had such a hard time getting home, sorry about that. What did movie critic Pauline Kael say about the Warriors in her review for The New Yorker? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to butcher it. She's got such a way with words, but it's really beautiful. She talks about the Warriors. She compares it to a neon jukebox in a dark bar uh, that you go in there, and it's got the sort of night, sexy night music, I guess, and a broken down, maybe even degraded genre. Uh, she really got it. She, she understood that this was about the poetry of young men and the poetry of youth. And um, Walter Hill captures the poetry of youth in a way that very few filmmakers ever had. Yeah. You describe the Warriors as an old Hollywood romance of sorts. I, I find that kind of a surprising description. Can you explain what you mean? Well, it's, I think it's the scale of it and it's the breathlessness of it. You know, there's something of a Minnelli musical in this or, you know, Singing in the Rain or in Oklahoma where all of the emotions are expressed in such a huge way. And you see the person that you're supposed to be with across a crowded thoroughfare and a song breaks out. And in this instance, in the Warriors, a fight breaks out. Or, you know, someone sets fire to the train tracks and against the, the, the compulsive soundtrack of a subway hurtling by, you kiss the girl for the first time. Or it's in a rainstorm and, and you, you pull her to you. And there's this grand romantic element of his movies. And also they're beautiful looking, you know, to, mm, not to yeah. shave anything off of that. But, you know, they're beautiful looking. They're, they're beautifully choreographed. They are essentially musicals you know the long rider was based on a play that was originally a musical hill is a very musical guy his dad was a jazz drummer there's the element of this throb of life that goes through his movies that reminded me a lot of the great mgm musicals the great technicolor spectacles Mm, very well said walter child thank you very much for joining us congratulations on a walter hill film tragedy and masculinity in the films of walter hill thank you so much for having me doug it was a real pleasure That was Walter on Walter on Walter Hill's The Warriors. Film critic Walter Chow is the author of A Walter Hill Film. Whoa, what you doing there? Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Shea Serrano, Dennis Lehane, and Walter Chow. What you're gleaning from these interviews is groundbreaking. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org slash beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Special thanks to producer Tyler Ditter. I'm having a good time. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. Yeah, you ain't exactly the State Department type. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. I only got one question. Who named you leader? And thanks to you, our alphas. Well, we got a heavy rep. You mess with us and you'll find that out. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. No matter what he says, nobody lip off. Nobody get hot.